This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. For the past 20 years, I've been working in the apparel industry, sourcing, buying, and printing t-shirts for my clients. The one brand I return to every time is Bella Canvas. They cover all the bases, style, sustainability, color selection, and wearability. These really are the softest shirts available. The best news is they cut their fabric in Los Angeles, and for any of us that know the apparel industry, we know what a big deal this is. Whether you're looking for t-shirts, sweatshirts, joggers, tanks, or long sleeves, Bella Canvas really does have you covered. The best news is that Bella Canvas now has a retail line, available at shop.bellacanvas.com, where you can find more information about this amazing company and discover online exclusives. Use the code DBI2021 at checkout to receive 20% off your first order. Limit one per customer. Bella Canvas really did fuel the t-shirt movement. Be different. Be Bella Canvas. There are a bunch of hot topics on the ballot this election. Two questions have to do with limiting the power of a governor during a statewide emergency. Now, Republicans complained for months over Governor Tom Wolf's decisions during the COVID-19 pandemic. Governor Wolf opposed the ballot questions, but governors don't have power to prevent proposals from ending up on the ballot. Now, in Philadelphia, the city's district attorney is facing a primary challenge. Registered Democrats will decide whether District Attorney Larry Krasner, who came into office on a progressive platform of reform, should get a second term. He's running against longtime prosecutor Carlos Vega, who served under multiple administrations before being fired, along with others, in the office when Krasner took over. So um, what I'd like to do is just get from you, Mr. Vega, your sort of just a brief bio, brief history, how you got into uh, law as a, you know, as a, as a career and where you come from. Give us a little context. Let's talk about who you are so that we can humanize the story right from the start. Okay. Well, my family's from Puerto Rico uh, and my mother came to this country about the age of 16 or 17. She worked in a factory, saved enough money to bring my grandmother and, and my aunt over. Uh, eventually, she opened the grocery store of Bodega in New York in Manhattan, in the Upper West Side. Uh, we had that store in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, at that time, it was the height of the heroin epidemic back then. Uh, it was pre-plexiglass, where if you owned the store, people could come around the counter and, and get you. So uh, we were burglarized. You know, uh, she was robbed at gunpoint. My grandmother and sister were both robbed at knife point in the store. And, uh, you know, I worked in the store as a little kid, stocking the shelves and closing the store with her on the weekends and in the summer. Uh, during that time also, you know, hanging out in New York, you, you got like a bunch of kids, like 20, 30 kids that you can hang out with. But uh, we saw a lot of my friends that I went to school with uh, got addicted to drugs. A lot of them died of overdoses. A lot of them ended up going to Rikers or Sing Sing, having committed crimes, both, you know, committing crime to feed that habit or, or getting in the game of, of selling drugs. So uh, at an early age, I always wanted to be a prosecutor because I, I felt like, you know, I needed someone to like represent people like my mom. But also I thought, you know, working in the system, I could give those people a chance that, uh, guys that grew up with me that were really smart, they just weren't as lucky as I was, you know. In terms of luck I had also was, my mother really uh, thought religion was important. I went to Catholic school 
and the Catholic school system is a little safer in terms of uh, public school back then in New York because I uh, had one friend that was stabbed in the sixth grade, you know, so in, in the public school system back then in, in the inner city, uh, you were fighting to survive uh, as opposed to, to learning. So I had that advantage. I went to Catholic school my whole life. And then uh, uh, I went to high school in the South Bronx, uh, and it was height of the gang wars. If you look at the YouTube videos, the Bronx was burning and uh, a lot of gangs. And I would have to navigate in the subway system through uh, my neighborhood, fight the gangs in Black Harlem and then fight the gangs in, in, in uh, the South Bronx. And being in Catholic school, you wore a suit, so you were a target back then. Uh, when uh, I entered college, my mother got divorced. So we opened a newsstand in the South Bronx in the subway. So my schedule was, I was up at four, go to the newsstand with my mom, go to class around eight, 8.30, and then after class, work in a shoe store till nine o'clock at, at night, seven days a week. But I managed to get good enough grades that I got accepted to several law schools, went to Boston College Law School, and then wanted to be a prosecutor. I didn't get the offers I wanted from New York. I wanted to work either the Manhattan DA's office or Bronx DA's office. Manhattan told me no, people say it's political, so. You know, I didn't get the opportunity. The Bronx waitlisted me, and, but I had offers from other offices in the in New York. But uh, then uh, D.A. Rendell, who eventually became the mayor and governor, uh, that office recruited me. I came over and I stayed in Philly because my guys who, uh, my friends that went to uh, work at the D.A.'s offices in New York were not satisfied. They didn't get any... Uh, training and I wanted uh, trial experience and in Philly we were trained very well as soon as I was in court I was doing major felonies you know I was doing between sometimes 40 to 80 cases a day five days a week so you you sink or swim and uh, I have three kids I had to raise two I became a single dad and uh, I wanted them to have the same education I had and as a DA you don't make a lot of money so rather than leave, because I really felt committed in being that voice for those mothers and fathers who lost their children. I worked 15 years at UPS at night. So murder cases by day, loading, unloading by, uh, by night for 15 years, and that paid their tuition. Then at 2018, uh, Krasner was voted. He fired 31 of the older people. Uh, I was one of those guys that was fired. Uh, so, you know, in the DA's office, I, I tried a lot of serious cases, uh, gave a break or, or opportunities to some guys that I could. But in homicide, you know, you're dealing with some very serious things that you can't undo. Right. So um, just really quick, and I, I want to just, it's kind of ironic, right before the call, Suave texted me and then called me and said that his parole officer was coming over um, to, because she wanted to see him in person. So, you know, you know, I just wanted to point that out because we'll probably get to a question around lifetime parole at some point. Um, so you worked in the D DA's office through uh, then three district attorneys, then Krasner was the fourth? Five. Five, okay. So you mentioned who Rendell. Um, I know Lynn Abraham. I know Seth Williams. Who was between Rendell and Abraham? It was Rendell Castile, who was... Uh, uh, Republican became a Supreme Court state Supreme Court judge. Lynn, then Seth Williams, and then Kelly Hodge. Okay, Kelly Hodge. Okay, right. Okay. Um, so, 
one of the things that we're you know that we've been kind of looking at um and there was a, a big article obviously this weekend around some of the police tactics uh in philadelphia um you know maybe speak a little bit to you know you're you're running on a on a, on a bit of a reform platform and i, I just want to hear what that means because we're seeing more and more of these stories come out and actually you know suave and i are inter- investigating one that's a little funky too but um you know, talk to us about how uh, how the DA's office is going to keep continue to hold the police accountable um, going forward around these kinds of things. Well, I have a plan. It's several stages. Number one, we have to hold bad police officers accountable. Uh, I've prosecuted police officers in my career. One, I prosecuted for committing a, a double homicide uh, while under the influence he killed two people. That was a jury trial. Jury convicted him and he went to, you know, you, you went to prison. I know a bunch of, I got a lot of backlash there because even the unit investigating it didn't do everything they, they needed to do. So basically I was on my own. Uh, I also, in 2017, there was a homicide detective. His girlfriend committed a murder. Uh, she called him. He got rid of evidence, you know, basically destroyed it. Got her out of the city, you know, got her out of the state and eventually took her out of the country. I investigated that that case, you know, she she pled guilty to murder and uh, I prosecuted him for the felony charges of destruction of evidence and all that. And uh, when we were about to start the jury, he ended up pleading guilty to all the felonies. And the deal he got was he got to do his sentence in another county. You know, that way he wouldn't be in jeopardy since he was a Philadelphia detective. Unlike Mr. Krasner, and you've spoken to him, He's arrested 51 police officers that he's investigated the cases. As of yet, he hasn't sent a single bad cop to, to prison. The only felony conviction he got was a plea to uh, uh, aggravated assault where a cop tried to kill his son, shot him in the back. That sentence was a 11 half to 23 months house arrest, followed by three years probation. And all the other cases have been either not guilty or discharged at the hearing uh, three, he reduced to misdemeanor charges. They got probation. And one was a program called ARD, which is they seal your record. So, uh, number one, I, I believe in holding the police accountable, and I've done it. I've prosecuted the cops. He never has. Uh, second, I think we got to go 21st century. In Philadelphia, uh, only certain districts have body cams. Every cop should have a body cam. And, you know, I don't care. It, it really holds them accountable because when, when that camera's on, there's no dispute of what they're doing. Second, I think they should do what the police, uh, state police have or the troopers. They all have a, a dash cam on their car. And, and that's another video that you can see wide what's going on. So I think that's uh, accountability through technology. Second, I mean, third, I want to bring in the community. You need to, rather than arguing, uh, you, you need to bring them back and have the community say, listen, this is what you're doing right, but this is what you're doing wrong. And at times it's going to be an uncomfortable conversation, but rather than you know laying blame or whatever, admit what you're doing wrong and let's move forward. Because the bottom line is the community wants the police, but they want to be treated with respect, dignity, and, and have policing that they believe are appropriate. And I'm sure the police don't want to be vilified or hated. You know, they want to be okay. We're part of the community. You're not hating us. And then uh, another thing I want to do is I want to change the police training. The police 
from the police academy, they have continued education, trained themselves, and it creates an attitude of us against them. You don't you don't understand that we're we're the thin blue line. That's wrong. So what I want to do is from the police academy, have DAs be part of the education, judges be part of that education, community and church leaders be part of that education, training them. That way, you know, they're used to outs- what they would call outsiders coming in on a regular basis. And what's important is judges will explain what they're doing wrong. I'm telling them what they're doing wrong. You know, we could invite defense attorneys also, but the community leaders are very important because they're at the, the ground level saying, this is what we need. Uh, this is what you have to change. And, and suddenly they don't have that knee-jerk reaction going, you don't know us because we've been there the whole time. Then another thing, which I know the FOP will get angry at me, but they negotiated a deal where uh, officers after five years uh, can can leave the city, you know, and, and, you know, you move to the suburbs and raise your kids in the suburbs. I think we have to change that, that if you're a Philadelphia cop, you live in Philadelphia, your kids go to school in Philadelphia, you own a house in Philadelphia. That way you're engaged that, you know, this is your city as opposed to I'm just going to come in, you know, uh, do my thing and I go back to safety. No, you want to make your street safety and uh, safe and fair because your kids are there. Your wife is there. Your girlfriend's there. You got to shop in the same stores that we all have to. So I know I'm going to get a lot of pushback, but uh, I'm the DA. I'm not a cop. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't work for the FOP. So those are the things I would want to do. One of the, I'm, I'm glad you, you answered that because one of the questions... Um, first of all, I just want to thank you for coming on the show, such a short, short notice. But um, we did a survey and we collected questions that the community want to know about, right? And I think they deserve some answers. And again, these are questions that we collected from people. If you choose to answer them, that'd be great. If you don't think they're appropriate, please feel free not to answer them. And um, one of the questions, I'm glad you talk about the FOP, is that you are being sponsored by the FOP, not Mr. Krasner. Um, it, Lynn, if you can talk about the scope of this race, uh, what it looks like, of course, his opponent in the Democratic primary um, is supported by the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police. And I think that uh, endorsement by the FOP for the challenger of Larry Krasner Uh, Mr. Vega, is very telling. The FOP represents the very worst of regressive approach to the criminal justice system, the very elements that uh, Mr. Krasner is trying to reform. And here is Mr. Vega, who's claiming that he's different, aligning himself with the very ideology as well as individuals who have created the problems that we now have in the city of Philadelphia, where we have a justice system that is not operating in a just manner. So, yes, not one conviction of a cop has just been on the Krasner, but you have the full support. Don't you think that the FOP expect some form of loyalty from your office if you win? Well, the thing is, uh, Mr. Krasner in 2017, when he ran, he sought their endorsement and their support. They picked another candidate, which was Rich Nagrin, and they supported him. Uh, when I ran and I, I announced in December, rumor was that several people were going to run. 
because uh, the last time when he ran, it was six other people that ran. Only one got the support. So when I ran, I heard a rumor that at least three other people were going to run in addition to me. So I didn't seek their endorsement. They came since it turned out I was the only candidate. And, and you know what's going on is he doesn't get along with the FOP. So it was obvious that they had to support somebody. I was that guy. In terms of their thinking uh, that I'm going to help them or, or be loyal or, or whatever is this. Uh, if you look at my finances of who contributed, I think they only contributed 5% of what I've raised. I have the support of unions. And you would say, well, the unions owe me or whatever. What it is, I'm, I'm a DA for the city. Uh, I'm going to be at odds with them many times. Uh, the only difference between me and you have to realize, I have to work with the police department. The FOP is a union. And as a union, I worked at UPS and, and the Teamsters protect their employees, you know, because that's why they pay dues. So there are going to be times that I'm going to be at odds with 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 the FOP because they're going to uh, back up their, their guys, regardless of what they do. They're going to provide the best legal representation. So, but what I would like to do is, I don't believe as a DA, you should just be casting blame and fighting. You, you, you know, I, I don't have to like you to work with you. So I, I need to suddenly, you know, uh, sometimes say, you know, yo, dude, this is wrong. Can, can we talk about this? They might say, you know, go pound sand. I don't give a damn. Or maybe they say, you know what, you got a point. But I'm never going to shut the door in having a conversation. I, I believe when you treat someone with respect, at least they might listen to you. But uh, if, if they think that uh, they can control me or I owe them, I, I don't because I've been... My donors are from the city, unlike Mr. Krasner. I think a large amount of his donors are from out of state, a lot from California, and people from a different mindset. Because if you look at my donors as opposed to his, they're these billionaires and, and, and hedge fund people who don't live in Philly. I live in Philadelphia. And one of the reasons I'm running is my, my two kids that are still with me, my daughter's 24, my boy's 17. They are the color of the next victim. Because bottom line is, Blacks are being killed at levels that are unheard of. 87% of all murder victims are, are, are black people. And, you know, people, uh, you know, Latino people, we're at a lesser number, but it's, it runs between 10 to 12%. But when you add that, people of color are the ones suffering the most violence than, you know, what, what we call the, the other people that, that are in the city. So I'm really concerned about my children and, and people like my children. I have, a, I have a question really quick, Suave, on the FOP issue and the, uh, the comments earlier around um, police prosecutions. Some of, some of the issue, honestly, you know, and I'll do respect, is from you know, previous administrations. Some of these in- investigators, these detectives are actually dead now, but they have cost the city millions of dollars in, in um, you know, these forced confessions issues around um, evidence hiding, Brady violations, you know, the list goes on and on. And, you know, one, one of the things that concerns me and, and, you know, we have a progressive district attorney in San Francisco as well, that's under the same kind of fire Krasner's under in terms of the certain crime rates, but overall crime in the city of Philadelphia is down and it is across the country in many ways. And both the murder rate and the, and the other crime rate may be, you know, showing signs of the pandemic. You know, so I, I do want to I, I do want to point that out. But 
How do we hold uh, the former administrations accountable or how will you hold the former administrations account accountable uh, given that you were part of them? Because, you know, I'm, I mean, we, we can get into, you know, some of the cases that that, you know, in specifics. But in general, when we look at the, the biggest issues in Philadelphia, there was years where the police did not record any of their um, their, you know, their discussions or investigations or witness uh uh, interrogations and or interviews, you know, and we've got all these cases that have built up over the years. The city of Philadelphia has paid these, these, what we find out are the victims, you know, uh, millions and millions of dollars. How are we going to go back and clean that up? And, you know, and not to be rude, but, you know, I, I haven't seen that a lot from previous administrations and Krasner's exonerated 20 people, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I think of it this way, uh, going back, cause I was a prosecutor 35 years. Okay, so when I started was pre-ATMs, pre-cell phones, pre-pagers, pre-computers, okay? So when you talk about statements not being recorded, uh, you know, time has progressed and, and now statements are recorded. And before that, they were audio recorded. So you have to think of technology moving on. In terms of exonerations, holding the police accountable, uh, I think, you know, the conviction integrity unit is very important. You have to review those cases because, remember, the, the police protect themselves. And, and when a police officer is doing something wrong, they're not telling the world what's going on. It's, it's in secret. So you need to investigate those. What I take, what I said when I announced is I want the integrity, uh, conviction integrity unit. I myself, and remember, I was a line D. I was in homicide. I'm prosecuting murder cases. I had a case named George Cortez where a defense attorney says, Carlos, can you take a look at this? Because I don't think my guy did it. I investigated that case. He was serving life. I exonerated him. But I didn't stop there. I continued to investigate and found the true killer. He was arrested. He pled guilty to murder. Because I really think that mother who lost her child wanted some sense of justice. Because I don't think a mom wants anyone to go to jail. She wants the person who killed her child to go to jail. You understand? That's the difference. So what I've seen with Mr. Krasner is this. I want to uh, make that unit larger, okay? And it took me only five, no more than six months to investigate that case because I had 35 years experience, 30 years in homicide. So I brought in my crew that are good investigators and, and we did it and, and exonerated quickly, found the murderer quickly. I see under his administration, with the exception of, of two of his DAs, uh, they're straight out of law school. They don't have trial experience. You need guys who have been in court and have done this. So I would want people in that unit, a larger unit, with experienced lawyers of at least five years trial experience, you know, some were defense attorneys, some both, and uh, experienced investigators to, to pursue this and get them addressed like within six months, no more than a year, because it really shouldn't take that long because you have all that work you know, you got technology behind you. So I, I believe expand the unit, but don't stop because I know Krasner on several of the cases says somebody else did it. But you didn't go after that somebody else. You, you know, that, that parent says, I want to know who that someone else is. Go forward. Don't you just stop there. So holding them accountable is reviewing it larger unit because there's an assembly line there. And it's an outrage that you're waiting years. It's taken them like three years to do these things. It shouldn't take three years. Uh, and then I realized guys that go pro se, the ones that are being dressed are the ones in the Innocence Project or if your family got money to pay for a lawyer 
and you get to the head of the line. But there are guys who've been in prison a long time that they, you know, they've lost touch with family. They don't even have people to put money on their cup for the commissary. They had to do it pro se, and they're waiting at the back of the line. So I, I think with a larger unit, we we could address that. Um, Mr. Vegas, um, going right into that question, um, the George Cortez is, we commend you for that. However, one of the questions that we have is that in your 35 years in the district attorney's office, you mean to tell us that only one case you saw that was wrongly convicted when in three years we've discovered 20 currently death by incarceration is working on a case that we have a murder confession on tape that a certain district attorney, a, a certain um attorney hit from the defense, which is Charles Peruto, took a murder confession from somebody confessing to murder, and two other Hispanics man are in prison currently serving life. He claimed he lost that confession. Somehow we discovered the tapes. However, do you believe that the state of Pennsylvania has a problem with wrongly convicted people from past administrations that you were part of? Because a lot of these cases are coming from the 80s and 90s, you know, and that's one of the questions that we have. And a lot of people are pointing to the Anthony Wright case, which you know is like a famous case um, you was part of. We don't know to what extent, but people want to hear from you, the critics. Well, how you respond to critics when they say Mr. Carlos Vega is a monster? You know, obviously you're not. Obviously you are a person in the community, campaigning in the Latino community and in the communities. How do you respond to them critics, to them to them comments? Okay. I think they deserve an answer. Okay, well, with uh, I'll talk about Anthony Wright. Uh, I've done almost, uh, maybe more, maybe a little less, 450 murder cases, okay? I was a trial lawyer at the front lines doing cases. I was not in a unit that reviewed cases with, to exonerate them or not. In fact, uh, when I was there, there were only two DAs reviewing those cases. And that's why I say, absolutely, you need a conviction review because you can't have two guys uh, or two lawyers reviewing all the cases that are backlogged. So in terms of Anthony Wright, uh, I'll tell you what happened. And it's a talking point because if you look at my whole career, uh, you pick that one case where I second chair and I'll explain it. Uh, well, I think that's the case that's in the public no, 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 it, that everybody's talking about. So it, well, that's why we ask you. No, no, and, the, and, and it's a political talking point, okay? It's it's to distract the public from Mr. Kras's record, 499 murders. We're going to have 600 this year if things don't change. You know, that that murder rate has been going up since he took office. Now, that's he, he so rather than talk about his record, he's talking about this case, and I'll tell you about the case. The case was I didn't try that case in 1991. Not my case. Another DA prosecuted and convicted him. Uh, he secured a new trial years later, and another DA had it, right, about four years. The appellate unit had it, and decisions were made by the, the, the unit chiefs, the DA himself, to go to trial. I was brought in at the last minute a few weeks before saying, there's a bunch of witnesses have to be called. Uh, you're in. So I, I did not make any decisions of whether to prosecute or not because I had a a certain role of calling certain witnesses, and I did. And what the office had determined was there was sufficient independent evidence aside from the DNA to present it to the jury, and they decide, you know, do you believe the independent evidence of eyewitness testimony or the DNA? And the jury spoke. 
What speaks volumes is the Innocence Project, who had it for years, got him the new trial, uh, brought disciplinary action against the DA who had it, okay? Try to get her that person's uh, license revoked. They did not bring a disciplinary complaint against me, which speaks volumes that I was brought in the last minute. I didn't make those decisions. But unlike me, and I'll use the, uh, the case of Mark Whitaker, that under Krasner's administration, Mark Whitaker was a man who was serving life. He professes in a sense, got a new trial. Krasner decided to prosecute him and he was found not guilty. He's suing the city for millions and he's on the list of exonerees, okay? So he made the decision uh, as opposed, because he's the boss, it's the DA who makes those decisions whether to go forward with that. So uh, in terms of holding police accountable, is this, I'll use the example of a case that I had with uh, Mr. Krasner, the only case I had against him in a murder. It was a triple murder where his client killed mother, father, and aunt in a bodega in front of the teenage daughters. There were nine boxes of exculpatory evidence. I gave him the nine boxes. Take it all, look at it, make a copy. You know, and and because the jury speaks, I present my evidence, he does his, and the beauty of our system is you got 12 people who's not my family, not the person's family, who makes those decisions. Now, are there issues that bad police have done stuff? Yeah, that cop who hit his girlfriend's murder is a bad cop. Uh, are there DAs that, that bend the rules? Absolutely, because I've always said this, I'm not gonna lose my license to practice law to try and win a case, okay? I worked far too long to become a lawyer. And then what I say is this, out of 450 murder cases, not once has it my, uh, have I ever been brought in a disciplinary action. Think of it, that's 450 murders that, that never once, and even with Anthony Wright, my, my professionalism, my integrity has not been brought to be challenged that I should be brought before a board and they talk about my actions. So I can only speak about myself, are there DAs that have broken the rules? Yeah, I'll use the example of, uh, I think it was Dartmouth, a DA, where a woman said she was raped by, by a team, and then she came forward and says, I lied, and he kept going, you know, and he was disbarred, and he went to jail. So are there bad people? I'll use this example. I know seven judges going to jail. I know a lawyer is going to jail. I know doctors going to jail. And are there bad DAs? Absolutely. And you have to weed those out, and you have to train them, saying it's not about winning. It's about doing your job and doing it fairly because you shouldn't get scared that's exculpatory, exculpatory evidence. Give it to them. You know, you got the lawyer, you know, both sides. Let the jury hear it and let them decide. So as far as George Cortez, do you believe that you exonerated George Cortez, but in 35 years, is that the only case that you thought was innocent? Well, there are cases, and, and, and this is doesn't reach publicity, is this. Under my oath, if I believe someone is innocent, I cannot proceed. So there are cases that I've what called exceptionally cleared, where where they had circumstances. Uh, there are cases and that it's had to be reviewed. That I, I, I said they, they didn't do it. Uh, but the one that sticks in my mind was a bunch of years ago when I was what I call a baby DA. I wasn't in homicide yet, where five guys were charged with doing a robbery. And when I prepped the witnesses, they said, well, we picked them because they're black. And, and I said, well, yeah, they're black, but can you identify who they were? 
And they said, no, we, we were angry and we they brought the guys. And I remember from their records, you know, they, they had bad records that they do robberies. But I still stood up in open court and said, judge, I'm dropping the charges. And I remember the judge, he's now a, a, a federal judge in the Third Circuit, says, you're very lucky you had Carlos here because he could have just put them on and they would have ID'd you. You know, I, I said, I, I can't do that. Uh, so, but you also have to realize this, I've been on the front lines uh, as, as a trial lawyer. I've never set policy. They never made me a unit chief, even though I was the first Latino in the homicide unit and the only one in, not only in the city, but in the entire state of Pennsylvania. I was the only Latino prosecuting murder cases. And they always kept me in the courtroom. They never gave me the privilege or the responsibility of running a, a, a unit. So, um, do you, how many of your cases, 450 plus that you have prosecuted, how many of them have been returned, overturned in the courts? Uh, if any. The only ones that I believe are overturned, uh, I know three uh, for a new trial. One was the judge made a mistake. The second one, the court ruled that his attorney didn't visit his client. And then the third one, there was a change in the law that they said send it back for, for uh, resentencing. Uh, I know under the Krasner administration, uh, they've agreed to give people new trials and giving them a deal. I'll use the example of one case, uh, and, and the name of the person that loses me was in the press. Uh, this man... Uh, they did an execution of a black man and a 50-year-old child. Uh, what it was is they thought the black man had stolen drugs or whatever, uh, and he had a gun, and he told the other guy, take him out. They were killed. Uh, they reduced the, the charge from a first-degree murder with serving devil life to a third-degree murder, and he received a sentence of 7 to 14 years. So he'll be getting out soon since he's, I think he's done about 12 years. So, but in terms of... Uh, Cases being overturned, I, I, I know I know uh, Mr. Krasner has been looking at all my cases, and they're only talking about Anthony Wright. Bring some more and show me, because I've taken great pride that I've held, you know, done things by the book. They've been affirmed. Many of my cases have been affirmed by the Superior Court, Supreme Court. Uh, so I, I don't know of any. I know those three, uh, and I, I've heard of some cases that their murders have been reduced to third degrees and they begin in lesser sentence than life. So why do you believe, Kevin, give me one second, play, uh, so I can answer these questions on paper and then I, you got it. Why do you believe that when they mention Carlos Vegas and the community, people say he's a monster, you know, he's this, he's that. Why do you believe is that? Is that because the past history of the district attorney's office and the discontent with the community? Or, 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 or because it holds some truth, you know, and we want you to clarify that because a lot of people, when you mention Carlos Vegas, they say he's a monster. What do you, what is your response to them critics? Okay. Talk to the mothers that I've represented. Okay. The mothers, when I've, whenever I have a case, there's a mother or father saying they killed my baby. They would not call me a monster. Also, I've been fair enough that when I have prosecuted a person for murder, and then their loved one is killed. They've asked, will I prosecute that person? Now think of it. I put their child in prison, yet when there's a murder of their loved one, go, we want Carlos, you know, because I, I, I'm fair, but I, I'm a good advocate. I'm a good lawyer. 
I would have made homicide if I wasn't a successful attorney. I've gone to many parties of a, you know, because the reality is a lot of victims are in the life, some of them in drugs. And I've been invited to so many christenings and parties that out of respect, I've driven to give a present to the kid. And they go, I know, Carlos, you can't hang with us. You're a lawyer. But I've given them that respect. So I've had many people. Now, are people going to call me a, a, a devil or a monster? Yeah, those guys have prosecuted that, that are going to say that. I think I've gotten that moniker now since I've been running for office that Krasner says and telling people I'm that monster. But me in the community, because I, I, I go to neighborhoods that are not safe to eat. I go to Spanish areas, and the Spanish areas are the poorest areas in Philadelphia, and I go eat there with my people. And I've had many a drug dealer, many a defendant's family say, hi, Carlos, uh, because I, I'm one of them. I just happen to be a lawyer, okay, and I'm doing my job. And a, and a week ago, a lady that uh, worked in the DA's office, she goes, you know, you always treated people with compassion because after a case, I've always talked to my family saying what the procedure is, but the defense attorneys always leave because they represent their client. I've always turned to that mother or that family saying, do you know what happened to your loved one got convicted? This is the procedure. This is what you do. So I've always treated them with respect because I understand there are guys that do bad things, but that's still his mother. She's got his back. Okay. Like I've told my children, I could be embarrassed by you, ashamed of you, all that stuff, but I'm not going to stop loving you. So I always got angry when some DAs would go, like, how could she sit there? That's his, That's her son. That's why she's there. And I've always treated them with respect because at the end of a murder, most guys don't see this. It's a tragedy on both sides. You got a parent that lost their child forever. And then you got a, a parent who's lost their, their loved one to the system. You know? So that's two mothers that are grieving. You know, one, you know, sometimes they argue about at least you can see your son. But still, you, you, you're losing. That's the you, two broken hearts. I mean, I, I thank you for that because I think that the people need to hear. I think when candidates are in the campaign, they're in political mode and we don't get to see the human side. So I really thank you for that. And my last question is to you is, um, it was written by an anonymous person. Um, when people mention legendary DAs to you, Roger Keane and Barbara Christie, what comes to your mind? They were real. When I came to the DA's office, right, and... When I got into homicide, it took me five years. I did about 40 to 50 juries, okay? And when I was brought in there, you, you feel dumb because you've never done a murder case. It's a whole different uh, thing where they groom you to do more complicated cases. So in terms of them, I know Roger prosecuted a lot of the, the black mafia and junior black mafia cases where, where they were killing each other. I know Barbara Christie. Uh, prosecuted a lot of the Italian mob cases. They were, I was not at their level that, that I hung out with them. You know, I was what I call a baby homicide DA doing my murders and all murders are serious, you know, but mine were less complicated or involved when they were doing organizations and gangs as opposed to I had not reached that level yet. So I know Barbara Christine was my boss, a unit chief. So when I got in the office, she wasn't trying cases, although she did try one case, but she was a, a unit chief. Roger never became a DA. And uh, I, I I remember him. He tried tough cases. Uh, so the, were they legendary? I think Roger, you know, he's he's related to Martin Luther King's family. You know, people forget about that. 
And uh, he took a lot of flack by being a black man prosecuting black people. But people don't realize black people were killing black people. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and so he did his job. And uh, I, I remember, which is pretty sad, uh, there was a room with a, a plaque in his honor because he served so many years and he passed away. And uh, when Krasner took over, he took down that plaque. Well, what comes to your mind when somebody mentioned them two names? What, what's in two words? Tough prosecutors. Okay. So I, Thank you. I have a follow up about um, Roger King. <laughs> um, we've seen a lot of his cases come under scrutiny and a lot, a lot. And I'm not talking about a small amount for a man prosecuting murder cases, a lot of Brady violations evidence that did not show up witness testimony that did not show up cherry picked witness testimony um and how far are you willing to go if you get elected district attorney to investigate his old cases you know and i'm going to give you my blunt opinion about this because i have very strong feelings about it having been in the criminal justice system and then worked with returning citizens for 20 years after my you know kind of when i cleaned up my life um i think all of his murder cases need another a second look and so how far are you willing to go in terms of looking at his cases? And I'm not saying that all of them were bad, but, you know, there's there's a, quite a few where only the right testimony showed up in court. And, you know, I, I feel like that when we have that kind of seriousness and we've got men and women serving life, some on death row, because hit during Lynn Abraham's term, it was the deadliest district attorney's office in the history of that time, Right. Um, in terms of death penalty cases, how do we go back and look at that stuff? And can you, as somebody that worked with them and were part of those offices, you know, can you fairly look at these cases and and really look at it at like maybe overturning some of them? Well, that's where the conviction and turret here come in. I can't just say let's look at every one of his cases. All those people who were convicted based on his prosecution, absolutely, there are issues that you're saying you were. Uh, wrongfully convicted they they get into that system hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Debating side by side and tossing out accusations. Mr. Krasner, you have blood on your hands. Once again, we have the usual lasagna of lies. In their only one-on-one live debate ahead of the Democratic primary, District Attorney Larry Krasner and challenger Carlos Vega met in our NBC10 studio. We asked questions about gun violence, criminal justice reform, and race and public safety. The candidates vying for votes making claims we're checking on. My office has an, a nearly 85% conviction rate for shootings. The district attorney saying he's running on his record. Follow-up for you, you've mentioned an 85% conviction rate. Does that conviction rate include plea deals? All conviction rates include plea deals, so the answer is yes. Um, 
you know, the truth is that the vast majority of cases in any, any system are resolved by pleas. So what is the norm? Pew Research Center says in 2018, 90% of federal criminal charges pleaded guilty with 2% going to trial. And the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers said in the same year, less than 3% of state and federal cases had a jury trial. Longtime prosecutor Carlos Vega defending his record, specifically his involvement in retrying Anthony Wright, a man who served 25 years before being exonerated. I was called in at the 11th hour to aid or second chair that DA. The Innocence Project has previously called Vega's description of his involvement in the case false. Vega, though, arguing. The Innocence Project brought uh, disciplinary action against that DA. They did not bring disciplinary action against me. We asked the Innocence Project about that part of the claim, but have not heard back. When bail was uh, made, uh, now, there was more to the drama last night that you did not see during the debate after it wrapped, but while myself and moderator Jacqueline London and the other panelists were all, were all still in the studio, these men had a tense exchange. It started with Carlos Vega repeatedly sort of poking at the district attorney who was getting ready to leave, Vega saying he was inside Krasner's head and at one point saying, I'm your biggest nightmare. You made a mistake a long time ago. He did not specify exactly what he was talking about there. Now that all ended with Vega asking Krasner if he wanted to hug it out, which Tracy, they did not. So his cases will be reviewed. You know, those defendants should say, look at my case, take a second look. That's why I need a larger unit. I also want to make that unit independent, that it's not my saying, don't do this or that. I want them independent, saying we're doing the right thing. Uh, you know, we're going to be held to that standard of doing, bringing justice in, not, not conviction or, or covering a conviction. Okay, so that's why that conviction unit has to be larger, but it has to be with really experienced lawyers. You can't have someone straight out of law school. When I graduated from law school, I'll tell you this. I wasn't a lawyer. I'm dumb. I had to go to court and, and learn my craft. And you need someone with at least five years experience to, to review these cases and review them at a faster rate. It doesn't take, I'm going to tell you right now, it doesn't take three years to right. investigate whether somebody didn't do it. So what, um, there's also, when we're, we're looking at a specific case, actually, and I'm, you know, we did an episode on it, so it's easy to find. Um, some of the, the detectives that were on that case have been um, have been rightfully accused of on the ban list from testifying and well, on the even, dirty list of dirty cops. They, they, one of them, one of them actually was on the Anthony Wright case, and we, you know, come to find out he coerced testimony and, and witness and witness interviews. And so, you know, how are we going to look at those cases as well? Because what the specific case we're looking at, quite honestly. Roger King was the ADA. He was the prosecutor on that case. Uh, we've got a number of like Dunham and a couple of the other uh, police officers that are were notoriously going in and, and extracting confessions and um, witness testimony that was coerced. Um, how 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 are we going to set up a system in Philadelphia where those those cases take priority, where we've got multiple actors in bad convictions on one case? Well, the way you do it, once again, I go back to that unit as a larger unit. You, you understand? I, I, I personally think the unit is too small. Okay? You you need more people in that unit. So let's use the example of you want to look at the cases of a particular detective. Okay? Well, if that defendant has filed that appeal saying review my case, then it gets in the system. 
because there might be cases that that detective did or that DA did that they're not they're not asking it to be addressed. You know what I'm saying? You know, I, the example is some guys, you know, did do it. And, you know, even though you do it, you're going to do your appellate process. It's your right as an American. You know, you're going to, going to fight it. But there's some people who are not going to be challenging it. But those people who are challenging it because of who that detective was or who that DA was, yeah, you you file the, the form that you're, you want it to be reviewed, and then it's reviewed. So it's not an issue. You see, there's too many cases that we don't have the technology that will pop up in a computer all the cases that detective did. That doesn't exist. We don't input that. But the defendant himself, that person who was convicted, can say, review my case. That detective was involved. Okay. Um, And just one other thing on this, and then I have another really uh, very, very timely question based on what happened to Suave earlier. But um, how do we know, you know, this isn't just pre-election Luster, what what are you going to tell the community? Are, are you promising us you're going to you're going to grow the task force that you're going to fairly convict people that need to go to prison and look hard at these cases? Because, you know, bluntly, and it's a sad state of affairs in my opinion that Philadelphia ha- has had some of the highest incarceration rates in the country for the ten largest cities. It's also like the has been the most supervised city for people coming out after release, and you know, there's been this kind of ongoing new narrative around you know especially during the time of roger king and and you know uh early in lynn abraham's uh tenure where we 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 have a lot of cases that are coming back up and being shown to be you know pretty pretty weak cases against the the people that are currently serving life in prison or sitting on death row are you going to promise us that these aren't just campaign promises that if you get in, you're going to take this stuff seriously because, you know, ultimately the country as a whole, but specifically Philadelphia, desperately need these marginalized communities to be able to come out of this cycle of generational trauma and violence. Well, you have my promise and my word because of this. I believe in public service because when I would reach that crossroads of supporting my family, I didn't leave. I worked 15 years at UPS to do this because I felt someone like me who comes from the streets, who knows what violence is, but know that guys, some of them are what I call knuckleheads. They're going to do what they're going to do. But there are other guys who are good people who did bad things or made mistakes because of their youth or lack of opportunity. Okay. And, and I don't believe in incarcerating everyone. There are people that need programs. People are drug addicted, mental health. They don't go to jail. I want to put them in programs pre-arrest to get those needs addressed. They don't go to jail. Because everybody forgets when you think of a drug addict. Oh, he's a fiend. And I remember growing up, and you're seeing it now, how a heroin addict is almost leaning on going to fall, and they don't. I watched that as a kid. But these were guys that I played. They were all the guys that I played baseball. They were my coaches, and, and they got eaten. And, and you have to realize that person nodding out someone's daughter is someone's son or someone's parent that you know you don't give up but then there are guys who are killing our youth okay and that that their consequences have to be that you, you can't be killing us we're dying at record numbers so it's a separation people need help because of lack of opportunity lack of programs and then those committing violence you know because when people drive through the neighborhood that's a bad neighborhood no it's a poor neighborhood held hostage by a few bad apples you know, and, and that's why I got programs that I want to institute to address those issues. Like 
I always felt I love talking to children to get them when they're young. That's why I want to do an adopt-to-school program. Adopt-to-school, I got 320 DAs. That's 320 schools I can adopt, and it's twofold. Number one, most DAs or people become lawyers don't come from my background. They come from better or more affluent families. So when they drive through a neighborhood, they go, oh my God, this is horrible. But if they go to that neighborhood, they'll realize, wow, and they're gonna be every other week have to be there a full school day of seeing the kids coming into school, talking to the parents, talking to the faculty, having to eat lunch in that area that they realize, wow, this is a, a good neighborhood, except the houses look messed up because they're poor. But these are good moms and dads. So, so then they learn that we're not, a black neighborhood is not a dangerous neighborhood. It's a poor neighborhood. Then also they'll become role models to those children because I never saw a lawyer, although I want to be a lawyer, I still went on TV. And then you, you talk to the parents and a lot of times the parents are afraid to call the police because they don't want to be a witness. But they can tell that DA, listen, that house is a problem or these people are doing this and then I can take care of it and they feel safe. And then I want to bring in what I call children's court, which they had in the high schools before and they took it out. When a kid does an infraction, don't suspend them. Have like a mini trial, have your DA, your defense attorney judge and a jury of kids. And if the kids found guilty, they decide what the penalty is. You know, clean up graffiti, write a letter of apology, clean a classroom. That way they learn, okay, there are rules here that should be followed and there are consequences as opposed to taking it to the streets. Also, when you talk about probation, you mentioned about lifelong probation. This is what's bothered me, and it's twofold. Number one, let's say when a guy gets out of prison, you usually don't have anywhere to go, so you go with your mom. And what if your mom's dating some knucklehead who's disrespectful or abusing her? You're gonna freak out. I need the probation department not to come to me uh, when he's violated, but come to me saying, this guy has a bad living situation. You know, you gotta live with his mom, but this is it a bad environment? So we gotta, you know, work on proper housing to get him out of that environment. Also with probation, people just say probation and that's it. And, and Krasner shortens probation, which is, you know, short-term supervision. What I want is what I call a learn and earn program, which is when you're on probation, I'm gonna give you a roadmap to success. So I use the example of someone's addicted to drugs. As you're in that drug counseling program and successful, your probation is getting less and less and less. Then the next stage would be you get parenting classes because people forget. Usually their parents, their children are being neglected or abused. You're, as you're in that program and you're succeeding, it, I lower your probation. Then when you get counseling, GED, vocational training, whatever, it's being reduced as you're in that program. And finally, when you get a job, and I'm talking about on paper that you're paying taxes, I terminate your probation. So basically I'm telling you, these are the things you do and you walk off that probation. Because I've looked at this and they used to make fun of this judge I was in front of. Whenever her probationers got their GED, she would bring them in and we'd buy a cake and celebrate. And it sounds corny, but it meant the world to them that they had achieved. So why I look at a probation is when you get on probation, you've lost your self-respect, your self-esteem. You know, you're going like, who am I? But if you achieve all that, You've regained your self-respect, your dignity. You're saying, look at what I've done. And I have to give credit to that, that, that you know, you're not that person that was on probation. You're, you, you're a taxpayer now. You've achieved a lot. So that's my, my the way I think, having grown up in, in the hood. 
being with guys like that. So that that so I want to bring a change, you know. But the thing is, the bottom line is, I want to keep people alive. Like you, you, you laid out your plan. Does that plan include working hand on hand with formerly incarcerated people that's out in the community in Philadelphia, like myself, trying to better the community? You know, I'm out there giving out food. I'm out there giving people therapy, bringing people into therapy. I'm out there getting people coming home from prison. They have nothing. Using my own money, taking them shopping, making sure that they have the proper resources to at least navigate the system. Did that plan that you lay out include working hand on hand with the community of formerly incarcerated? That's another program because I'm talking about probationers and what you're talking about people who are did their time and are coming out, and that's a whole different situation. And what I want to do with that is this: to reduce the violence, I want to institute what's called a focused deterrence program. And you know, I don't know if you looked at my platform, but real quick is this: uh, law enforcement investigates the small group of people committing the crime in that community. They're at risk youth, at risk of dying or at risk of going to jail. And what you do is then you bring in the mayor, city council, uh, community groups, and and, uh, business people to offer them another path of saying, these are opportunities we're going to give you, and we're asking you to put down the guns yourself. If not, you commit crime, we're going to prosecute you. And what I want is partly like a person like yourself is this. I need what's called violence interrupters because it's really easy for some person who read about poverty or violence to lecture. And people on the street go, you don't know what you're talking about. But a person like you, a violence interrupter is saying, look, I've been there. I've gone to jail. I've done wrong. And look at what I did. I could have complained and keep doing it. Or I could say, you know what? This is not going to happen to me again. So you come with a credibility with the youth saying, okay, he's been there. He's done that. There's some kids who are not going to listen to you because they know better than you. Uh, But also, I want to deal, and and running for office, I've dealt with a lot of unions that have gotten their support. And they said, uh, you know, we don't ask if you have a felony. You know, you could be a painter, a plumber, all that stuff, and get a good job that you can support a family, benefits, all that stuff. But we need to be, you need to become aware when you're doing your timing that these opportunities are available. A lot of times you get out and you go, you mean I could be a plumber? I didn't know that. You, you mean, so we have to, in that community, say, okay, you, you're doing your time. You could do what I call good time, saying, you know, rather than being warehouse, saying, I'm going to get all the, all the credits I got. I want to learn carpentry or plumbing or electrical work. Do those math courses. When you get out, those unions are there. Uh, that's saying, yeah, we need guys. Uh, the same way I want those unions also to come on a regular basis to the high schools because college isn't for everyone. And a lot of kids don't realize, you know, they think like, if I don't go to college, I'm not going to make money. You know, I use the example, if your toilet is overflowing, I'll pay that guy a million dollars to stop it because I don't know how to do it. You know, so those vocational programs are very important because they're needed. We just don't know, like putting up crown molding. Some people know how to do that. You'll pay for that. But our kids don't know that. And are people incarcerated, you know, because I know in college, I mean, in in, in prison, you can get your college degree and everything. But I think you need to deal with a lot of the vocational thing because guys are good with their hands, you know. So I I think there has to be a step down from getting out of prison that you don't get out because, I mean, it's got to be scary. You get out and you go, now what? You you have to have a plan like, no, not now what? I I send my resume. You know, I've learned this 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 up. 
trade in prison, give me a job. Know where that local is, like, you know, local whatever, you know, sheet metal. You know where to go there. The day after you get out of jail, you you, you go there. I mean, I'm glad I'm glad to hear your answer because I think a lot of people needed to hear that. Kevin, you had a, a another question. Well, I just wanted to follow up. So, the example that we have here in this in this interview is Suave. He's he's on lifetime parole. His sentence on parole is longer than his sentence was after he was resentenced a few years back. How are we going to eliminate things like that? I mean, you know, this guy's obviously changed. He's aged out of of any of his earlier indiscretions. And he is not the sum of his worst mistake. And so we've got him in a position where if he wants to come to California and stay with me for a week, he's got to check with his parole agent. He's got to make sure that they know his all of his schedule. And, you know, I mean, he's a grown man. And he was not a grown man when he went into prison. Well, not to mention community activists. I'm out there five days a week serving the community. I work for a behavioral health um, clinic where we offer therapy to returning citizens and anybody else that been traumatized in the community, all they got to do is call. I get them in for therapy. I got my degree from the University of Villanova. And, you know, I'm out here trying to bring a change to the community because I'm, I'm feel, I live in North Philly. So I see the damage that's happening. But yet I'm a lifetime parole, which is, I think is a waste of tax dollars because you know, I'm not in the street. I don't sell drugs. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't hang out. And when I do hang out, it's to go out to community events. But yet the system still feel that for a crime that I, that I was accused of 35 years ago, I should be on lifetime parole, even though there's evidence that was withheld. But that's a different story. So, so when um, Mr. Vegas went, I could take that to his office. But, but however, um, I just feel... Uh, that it's messed up and I'm, I'm hoping that some DA see that we don't need to keep these guys on lifetime parole and advocate on our behalf well, that, that's an issue we have to address with the legislator uh, and, and you know the DA's office has a legislative unit that we could bring in legislation and go to different uh, senators or whatever saying you know would you be interested in this legislation what you're saying is, is correct because a person like you doesn't deserve lifetime parole because you you have achieved everything you need to do. This is holding you back. So there has to be a procedure where, I don't know if, let's use you as an example. Your parole officer, I'm sure, is aware of everything you've done and everything you've achieved. In fact, maybe your parole officer says, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for the inconvenience, but I got to do this stuff. So I think we need to do legislation of saying this. When you've done certain things or turned your life around, and you know, let's say the parole officer verifying, saying, "Look, I know this guy. I've, I've supervised him for this number of years. He's this is a waste of our time, a waste of our resources. Let's have a procedure that, let, let's say, the DA's office has a hearing, right, with with, with the the parole board saying, you know, I'm the DA. Uh, this is the pro the probation officer, parole officer saying." I believe this person, his parole needs to be terminated because of these these reasons. And then the parole board says, it's done, you know? So that, I've never seen any legislation like that. You're not the first person who has complained uh, about that issue of saying, look, I'm not that guy anymore. I don't need that. An example is this, I've in, in running for office, I've had so many people that are gonna vote for me that have misdemeanor charges. And they say, this is holding me back. Well, I want to put in a procedure that, you know, I have a, a clinic where you come in and we'll do the paperwork for you. 
bring it into court because one, several people have been a misdemeanor when they were 18 and they're they're 35 years old. Never a hiccup. Like, really, you're going to have that stain? You know, you were young and dumb. You, you know, you have to realize that. So, as a, But a lot of them have to hire a lawyer who don't know the procedure. I'd say have a certain day of the week where unit where there's a clinic saying, okay, those guys who have a conviction and you think it should be removed, come over here. We'll, we'll, we'll do this stuff for you free. You know, you just got to fill out the paperwork and, and you know where to go. Because a lot of times people don't know where to go. Like they go, I, I want it expunged. But that's all you know. You, you, you don't know where to go. Well, you come to the office. We, we know. Right. So in closing, um, I think Crowdspace has a question for you. And Sean King, you know, we just came across an article that you claim to um, threat to sue him. Um, don't you think that Sean King is exercising his constitutional rights and expressing his thoughts about a certain yes. candidate? And guess what? Under the Constitution, I'm, I'm, I'm exercising my right to not have me threatened my family friend or my followers or people of color being called racist. So guess what? What Sean King has made the mistake of this. I fought my whole life to get out of the hood. I've broken barriers. I've been called a token even when I was a homicide prosecutor. I've been discriminated against. I've been pulled over by the police. But you know what I have? What my mother taught me? Life is unfair. Get up and fight. So Sean has attacked me personally and my family. And I'm using the law so he has his First Amendment right, and I have my right to use the court, and the court will decide who's right or wrong. So, you know, again, I think this has been an incredible interview. I think people will get to see the man and not the politician and not the candidate, the man behind the candidacy for district attorney in Philadelphia, which is Mr. Carlos Vegas. And on behalf of Crowdspace, and everybody out there that will be listening. May 18th is the primary in Philadelphia. I, I would like for you to tell the people of Philadelphia why May 18th you deserve their vote. The reason I deserve their vote is this, I care. I've devoted my whole life to serving the public. I've been that voice for people who are not heard. I bring in a measure of compassion because I've been there. I know it is to be hungry. I know what it is to be scared. I know what it is to face things that are unfair, both as a young man, as an adult, when I was fired in 2019 after 35 years of service. Uh, so I'm going to bring in a measure of saying that I want to save people that are good people that have made mistakes, save those people who are addicted to drugs and swallowed up by the streets. But that same token, I want to make sure that mother's not worried about sending her kid to the store or that kid playing in the playground because our youth has to be cherished okay a mother shouldn't get a knock on the door saying their baby's dead so i'm going to make our, our streets safe but i'm going to bring in reform and i got ideas since i've lived through it to you know be role models for our children educate people and then hold the police accountable and and bring in real change in the police department you know and be have someone with the courage to break barriers you know when when i i should have gone to college I shouldn't become a lawyer. And when people flunk the bar, everybody thought I flunked the bar. I didn't, I passed. So I've had to break barriers my whole life. And I think, and it shows from my history is this, 
I don't want to turn my back on my people. You know, we need to be heard. We need to be protected. We need to be treated with respect and dignity. And I'll, I'll say this about everyone, no matter what color you are, what religion, we all want to be safe. We want to be loved and our children have a better life. And I really think this city can is, is great. It needs to thrive. We need our businesses to be safe. We need our children to be safe. But I need to help those people because the bottom line, life isn't fair and I have to give them those opportunities. So I think I have that commitment, that drive, and it's from a perspective that I know where you're coming from as opposed to reading about poverty in a book or reading about violence in a book. Can you say something similar in Spanish for our listeners, um, our Spanish listeners? Para, para mi gente Para mi gente, necesito tu apoyo. Quiero ser fiscal en Filadelfia. Yo, yo amo mi, mi ciudad, amo los niños y quiero luchar para ti. Y para ti, necesito el apoyo mayo de 18, porque quiero ser fiscal hasta la vida, pero y es el seguro. Necesitamos una ciudad que, que eh, eh, es seguro y reforma para la gente de nosotros, la gente de color. Gracias. Kev, you got the last question, Kev. No, hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute. What happened if I was like a white boy that didn't know how to speak Spanish? Because that's the luxury we have for having Mr. Carlos Vegas that is a bilingual speaker that could communicate in both languages to two different demographics. Because a lot of time candidates campaign in our community and don't speak a lack of Spanish and but expect our people to understand what they're saying and communicate. So I think it's fair that the Latino people get to see you in both demographics, you know, so, and we thank you for that. We thank you for that because not every candidate do that. Kev, you got the last question, Kev. Well, I just want to say um, thanks for not ducking any of our questions. I know, uh, you know, Suave was tracking you down, <laughs> trying to get you on the show and fair is fair. I mean, we've got two candidates from the Democratic Party running in the primary in Philadelphia. We obviously are incredibly on the side of reform on this show because of our own lived experiences, our own and Suave and, and I both being in, you know, in the system at different times and, you know, and me being a recovering addict, we have, we have a lot to at stake when we talk about these issues. One, one thing I would like to ask, I know that the current district attorney, Larry Krasner, who, you know, we like, we've had him on the show. He's, you know, he's a friend of the show as well as we hope you are now too, uh, did a lot of purging of the of the office when he came in, 31 attorneys were let go. Will you commit to at least working with his team that's there now and trying to further some of these more progressive, progressive sort of policies that they've put in place? Uh, I feel that whoever's DA in Philadelphia, you know, the continued fairness around, you know, really working towards a, a new era in law enforcement is is much needed, you know, and I say that we need to tear it down and rebuild it from the studs personally, but, you know, everyone has a different opinion and I'm open to that. But I, I you know, and I'm not asking you to commit to anything you can't to commit to, but can you, can you at least tell us you're willing to work with the people that are there and make this as smooth a transition as possible? Because if you win the primary, we know what's gonna happen. Debating side by side and tossing out accusations 
Mr. Krasner, you have blood on your hands. Once again, we have the usual lasagna of lies. In their only one-on-one -on -one live debate ahead of the Democratic primary, District Attorney Larry Krasner and challenger Carlos Vega met in our NBC10 studio. We asked questions about gun violence, criminal justice reform, and race and public safety. The candidates vying for votes making claims we're checking on. My office has an, a nearly 85% conviction rate for shootings. The district attorney saying he's running on his record. Follow-up for you, you've mentioned an 85% conviction rate. Does that conviction rate include plea deals? All conviction rates include plea deals, so the answer is yes. Um, you know, the truth is that the vast majority of cases in any, any system are resolved by pleas. So what is the norm? Pew Research Center says in 2018, 90% of federal criminal charges pleaded guilty with 2% going to trial. And the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers said in the same year, less than 3% of state and federal cases had a jury trial. Longtime prosecutor Carlos Vega defending his record, specifically his involvement in retrying Anthony Wright, a man who served 25 years before being exonerated. I was called in at the 11th hour to aid or second chair that DA. The Innocence Project has previously called Vega's description of his involvement in the case false. Vega, though, arguing. The Innocence Project brought uh, disciplinary action against that DA. They did not bring disciplinary action against me. We asked the Innocence Project about that part of the claim, but have not heard back. When bail was uh, made, uh, now, there was more to the drama last night that you did not see during the debate after it wrapped, but while myself and moderator Jacqueline London and the other panelists were all, were all still in the studio, these men had a tense exchange. It started with Carlos Vega repeatedly sort of poking at the district attorney who was getting ready to leave. Vega saying he was inside Krasner's head and at one point saying, I'm your biggest nightmare. You made a mistake a long time ago. He did not specify exactly what he was talking about there. Now that all ended with Vega asking Krasner if he wanted to hug it out, which Tracy, they did not. Well, the thing is this, and people, you're not the first person to ask me, but people ask me more blunt. When I come in, am I going to fire everyone? No, absolutely not. I'm going to review people's files. I'm going to interview them. And there's a period of time that I'm going to see who can cut the mustard or not. But no, I'm not going there to say, okay, I'm in power. Whoever knew Larry or whatever, got to go. No, I, this is a business decision. It's not about petty grievances. It's about saving this city. So day one, I had to hit the ground running to reduce this murder rate, to reduce the shooting rate and bring in the reform. So no, I want people to work with me, okay? Because I have vision, you know, people because I've been a DA so long think I'm some sort of hardcore right-wing person. No, I'm in the middle. I want reform, but I, I want safety. So I hope those people share that vision with me and say, let's bring in reform, absolutely. But let's make sure our children are not dying at record rates. So no, they're, they're, they're not leaving. Okay, I mean, they have a right to leave because, you know, they'll do whatever they want. But I really want to work with the people and train them properly because, you know, in one of the debates, they said how the attorneys, and I know that for a fact, saying they're undertrained, they don't know what they're doing in court. I know I'm a good lawyer because of the training I receive. I want to bring that training back. But also I want this commitment because I see this when I've lectured. DA doesn't work nine to five. It's a 24-7 job. Okay, so they have to realize that. I don't want people leaving at five o'clock like, like they're punching a clock. You do what you gotta do till the work is done because if you fail, someone's gonna die. You can save a life, 
So I need people to be committed with that mission of we're we're here doing God's work to protect people and, 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 and bring some justice to everyone. So all my people in crowd space, the millions of people out there that's gonna be listening to this, May 18th is the primary in Philadelphia. You have a choice to make two candidates, two views, two platforms. Who will win on May 18th? You listening to Death by Incarceration on Crossspace Media with Kevin McCracken and Suave Gonzalez. And if y'all heard it here first, then y'all know it's official. Death by Incarceration. Thank you, Mr. Vega. Um, we hope to have you back on the show again. Um, we here to give the public a look on the system on every level whether we agree with a certain candidate's view or not we believe in providing a platform that will that will that will show fairness and the same way we have mr krasner we thank you from the bottom of our heart for you coming on because i think that the community needs to see both candidates not just one and before i go before i go it's just dawn in my head how do you feel that that the Philadelphia Inquirer endorsed Mr. Krasner and not you? And we could close with that. Well, you know, uh, the Inquirer has entitled to their opinion. These are people that had not lived my life or your life. So it's easy for them to, to pick a side. I know who I am. I think you guys talking to me to see where I'm coming from. So, you know what? The, the Inquirer is one thing. I'm worried about the voters, the people listening to you that are listening to me. That when they close that curtain and go, I'm not going to let uh, some elitists tell me who to vote for. I heard Carlos, I heard Krasner, and I want Carlos. Good. So, people, again, do not let fear mangle um, dictate your decision when you go into the booth on May 18. Vote with your conscience, it's not with your emotions. You are listening to Death by Incarceration. Again, with my partner, Kevin McCracken and Suave Gonzalez, with our special guest, Mr. Carlos Vegas for DA. May 18th, primary in Philadelphia. Thank you very much, Mr. Vegas. Okay, thank you guys for having me. Death by Incarceration was created to look at every aspect of the current criminal justice system. Each week, we will share stories intended to shed light on institutions that viciously target and harm marginalized communities, specifically communities of color. Brought to you by Crawlspace Media, Suave Gonzalez, and Kevin McCracken. Please listen, follow, and subscribe to Death by Incarceration, coming in summer 2021, wherever you get your podcasts.
This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.